Well, good morning. I want to invite everyone, if you will, because there's so few of us on this holiday weekend, if you would make your way to the front. While you're doing that, I'm going to adjust the volume in on my microphone so we're not blowing out of here. But if I hadn't noticed the sub-zero temperatures, scientifically it says that if bodies are closer together, they can share heat and therefore become warmer. So um, we're, we're going to gather up a little closer this morning, and uh, I pray that you'll feel a little bit more comforted as we open the Word of God today. Um, as you're doing that, I'm just going to pray, and I'm going to ask God's Spirit to be with us this morning as we open His Word and discuss a very important subject. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus and we ask you to pour out your Holy Spirit. Father, every time we open the word, it's important, but I believe that even now, more than ever in our day and age, there's such a need for your church to be filled up with and empowered by your Holy Spirit. And I know that many of us come from different traditions, different backgrounds, different experiences, Father, but what unites us all together is our singular faith in Jesus Christ and the unity that we have in the Holy Spirit. And so I pray, Father, today as we open the word, God, that you would just descend on this place. Let the weight of your presence fall. Open our eyes. Open our ears. Open our hearts, God, and do a mighty work. We are your children. We are your people. And we are hungry to honor you with our lives. We're hungry to draw close to you, God. We are hungry to experience you in every possible way because you are the source of true satisfaction. You are the source of peace. You are the source of love, God. We are not complete without you. So God, come in fullness. Fill this place. Fill our hearts. Holy Spirit, come. And as we open the word, as we discuss these things, God, I pray that you would have our full attention, Lord, and that none of us, each of us, would not ignore what's presented, God, but that we would wrestle with and even give ourselves more to you today because of what your word declares. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. I know one of the most difficult things to do in a church service is move your seat. So thank you for doing that. Uh, we are in week three of our series, The Wind About the Holy Spirit, teaching series about the Spirit of God. And what we've been doing is really just introducing who the Spirit of God is uh, and what He does through this series. I know many of you probably have a similar background to me, and the subject of the Holy Spirit maybe wasn't really discussed much, and, uh, and so your knowledge of or experience with the Holy Spirit it was, is limited, and I know mine was for most of my Christian life. But uh, we're looking through this series about not just who he is and what he does, but we're doing it to help us understand who this person of the Trinity, who this person of God is, and why Jesus said to us before he ascended into heaven that it was better that he, Jesus, leaves so that the Spirit of God can come. You know, that, that, that verse really puzzles me, and it gets to me because I think Jesus is probably a pretty awesome guy. And pretty, pretty awesome to be around, that he's God in the flesh. You can speak to him. You can touch him. He does some pretty crazy things. You know, that'd be pretty amazing to, to man, Jesus is hanging out in Clio, Michigan today. Okay, I'm going to be there. You know, it's just like we'd be there in a heartbeat. 
But Jesus said, it's better that I leave so that the Spirit of God can come. That is very significant. And that's something that we should not take for granted and not ignore. So in week one, we discussed that the Holy Spirit is God's connective force, that his entire ministry, everything he does while he's here, is to connect us to the heart of God, that we would experience God's love for us, and that God's love could then overflow out of our lives into the lives of other people. And last week, we discussed and discovered that the Holy Spirit is also God's source of power. Every miraculous thing God does and did through Scripture, everything he does today, is done through the Holy Spirit. He is God's creative force. And if we let the Holy Spirit, he will create something new out of us. Matter of fact, that's God's will for every believer, that we would become a new what? Creation. Right? All, things, all the old things have passed, all things have become new. That is a new life lived in and through the Holy Spirit. And today, one of the most vital points of discussion that we can have about the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit, and this is the title of the message today, the Holy Spirit is the agent and element of God's baptism. The Holy Spirit is both the agent and element of baptism. And today we are going to discuss the baptism of the Holy Spirit and see that not only is the baptism of the Holy Spirit possible for us today, but it's a vital part of the Christian life, and that each of us should be and should seek to be baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. And as we engage in this talk, really, this discussion really is going to require two parts. The first part is I want to show you several scriptures and discuss the theology or, or really what the Bible says about this issue to really kind of set a foundation. We have a core value at Vertical Life Church. We have six core values. One of those is unyielding truth. And what we mean by unyielding truth is that it doesn't matter our background, heritage, tradition, or even what the culture tries to press and impress upon us. We seek the scripture and whatever the Bible says, that is what we're going to believe. That is what we're going to follow. And so hey, I would challenge you, especially if you grew up in, in a tradition that maybe didn't study or, or seek the Holy Spirit, that today for just a minute you would just open your heart and say, hey, God, what do you have to say to me today? What do you have to say? What is the Bible going to say? And God, give me a heart that is ready to receive that. Because the Bible reveals a lot about this issue. And at Vertical Life Church, what we are going to do, we're going to be a people who live by the Word of God. It's our belief that, that what the Bible says is what we should agree to and believe. And if our belief is out of agreement with what the Scripture says or teaches, it is us that needs to change, not the Bible, no matter how we were raised. And then secondly, what I'm going to do is probably the most vulnerable thing I can do is I'm going to share with you my story my story and how I encountered and how I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. Because I believe it's important that you see it's not just a theological or intellectual thing, but this is also a very personal thing. And I'm going to share with you my story and how I truly believe that since that moment, I've been closer to God than I've ever been in my entire life. I really believe it. The first thing that I want to address really is the theological part. So we can see in the scripture that this is possible. We can see what the Bible says. And I know many of you probably grew up with different opinions on the Holy Spirit. And there's some arguments against what many people call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There are really two camps of belief. There is a group of people called cessationists that comes from the word cease. 
They believed that the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the miracles of the Holy Spirit ceased at the completion of the writing of the Scriptures, that since the Bible's been completed, we don't have a need for those uh, gifts of the Spirit any longer, that ministry of the Spirit. And that kind of, you know, I, I used to believe that. I used to really be a staunch supporter of that belief because of how I was taught and how I was, I was raised to honor and revere the Scriptures, which I think we should honor and revere the Scriptures. But I know people that still need healing, and every day I seek to hear from God. So there are things that even though they believe that those gifts and the works of the, the Holy Spirit have ceased, there's still a need for that today. And there's still a hunger for people to experience God in that way. But the, there are those that are called cessationists. Then there are the continuationists that believe what God did in the Bible still happens today, that it's continued on and is available to any and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus. So we have those two camps. And in my background, I was a staunch supporter. I was raised in a tradition and in churches that taught that the gifts had stopped, the ministry of the Spirit was only for salvation, that once you were saved and baptized, that, that was all you needed to experience with God. The rest of it was just your personal Bible study and church attendance and participation. But when it comes to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and this is a term that's highly debated, uh, Everyone agrees, if we're thinking about baptism, everyone agrees with water baptism. If you think about any church you could ever go to, everyone agrees with water baptism. Why? Because every church baptizes with water. They may not agree on how to do it. Some sprinkle, some pour, some immerse, you know, but, but each church does it. It was one of the last instructions of Jesus Christ before he ascended into heaven. He said, go into all the world, preach the gospel, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach these disciples to obey all the things I've commanded you, and lo, I'll be with you even until the end of the age. This is what we call the Great Commission or the mission of the church. This is the mission for every church. So if you're a Christian church, you're going to baptize with water. It's a practice we've been doing for thousands of years. But there's this term that's debated called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And people want to know what is it? Does it even apply or is it even a thing? And cessationists will say, no, it's not. It's not relative today. It's a misunderstanding of Scripture. It's a bad interpretation. And they will point to a particular verse in an argument found in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. And the verses will be on the screen for you as well as the notes are on version if you're following along. And you can take notes in your worship guide. But Ephesians 4, verses 3 through 6, Paul says something very interesting about baptism. Here's what Paul says. He says, Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, there is one faith, and there is one what? Baptism. And one God and Father of all who is over all, in all, and living through all. So if we're just reading the scripture for what it says, it seems pretty clear. Paul said there's one baptism, right? It's what it says. I mean, there's one baptism. And for most of us, when we read a verse like this or this verse, we're going to think of water baptism. Because that is the tradition. That's our history. That's what we're familiar with. Maybe even what we were taught. There's only one baptism, and that is the water baptism. That also includes that teaching that after you've been saved and baptized, that's all you need to do. You're good to go. You've got your golden ticket to heaven, and you can sing hallelujah all the way there. But uh, water baptism uh, is, you know, very familiar. It's something that we think of. 
But continuationists, these are those that believe the gifts of the Spirit are for today, they argue that there is another experience that you can have with God. And they call this the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they argue this is where spiritual gifts come from and, and that there's a whole new experience. Sometimes they refer to it as a, a second work of grace and they have their own terminology for it. And cessationists have a problem with the continuationists because if the Bible says there's one baptism, then how can there be another? How can there be another baptism? Especially when Paul says right here in Ephesians chapter 4, there is one baptism. But let's look at what Paul is actually saying. The important thing when studying Scripture is you have to look at context. You know, there's many things that we could say in our everyday life, you know, that without context could be misunderstood. Have you ever had that happen? You know, maybe you send out a tweet or a post on Facebook, and you're sending it to a friend, and you have an inside joke with some inside information, and you guys get it, but three or 400 people got offended at it, and now your Facebook's blowing up. Or maybe you say something in the workplace. You have an inside joke with a coworker. You know, you could say something as simple as, I hate you. But because they just pulled a prank, you're saying that in response in kind of a funny way when someone overhearing that may have gotten offended, be like, they just said they hated that person, you know. So context is key. Anytime you're studying scripture, it is vital and key that we have context. So look at what Paul is saying with this definitive or seemingly definitive statement about baptism. We'll, look, we'll just kind of break it down. In verse 4, of Ephesians chapter 4, he says, there is one body. Verse 4, Greece, back up one. If you can't, yeah, there we go. It says, for there is one body. Now, whose body are we talking about? Jesus, right? This is going to require participation, right? So hopefully you had your caffeine, and go ahead and shout it out. I'm recording this, so we want to hear you on the recording, okay? So whose body is it? It's Jesus' body, Right. There is one Spirit. What Spirit? The Holy Spirit. And there is one Lord and one God. Who is he talking about? The Father, right? And he even says it right there. One Lord, one God, the Father. Okay, so let's break this down. Let's wrap our minds around this. There is one body. We understand that as Jesus. Is Jesus' body singular? Or are there many parts to his body? We have his physical body. We have the church, which is the body of Christ, and we have each individual member that is also the temple, temple of the Holy Spirit. We're each part of the body of Christ. So even there is one body, there are many parts to the body. He says there is one spirit. We refer to the Holy Spirit. But what does Jesus say about God? He says there will come a day when the worshipers arise, and they will worship God in spirit and truth, for God is a spirit. So if there's one spirit, and that's the Holy Spirit, how can God also be spirit if there's not more than one? There is one Lord. Let me ask you this. Is Jesus Lord? It's pretty important you answer that question because Paul said if you don't confess him as Lord, you ain't getting to heaven. Is Jesus Lord? Is the Holy Spirit Lord? Is God Lord? If there's one Lord, how are there three? You catch what's happening here? All right, the next one, there is one God. Is Jesus God? Is the Spirit God? Is the Father God? Right, so if each of them are Lord, if there are multiple parts to each of these that are in one, there's something significant Paul is addressing. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 7, 
The Apostle John writes this. He says, For there are three that bear record in heaven. There's the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. One in agreement, one in unity, one in equality, one in the same. They're the same parts. It's like a pie being divided into three equal parts. Each part is its own section, but without the others, you cannot have the whole. They are together one. You cannot have the Father without the Son, the Son without the Spirit, and the Spirit without the Father. They are one. And we, so we know John is referring to the Trinity, and we have one God who's comprised of three persons. Each God is perfect in unity. They are completely perfect and complete. So even though we have one faith, we have one faith that's built on a relationship with three persons. We cannot have salvation without the grace of God, the sacrifice of Christ, and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We need each part in order to make up the whole. So could it be that even though the Lord is three, our faith is centered on a triune or multi-part relationship? The body of Christ is comprised of many parts. Our, you know, everything that he's talking here, there are multiple lords. Could it be, too, that baptism also is one baptism with multiple parts? Well, a logical conclusion would say yes. Absolutely. Yes, yes, and yes. And even cessationists, those that believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not for today, that there's no other experience you can have with God other than salvation, and baptism with water is purely symbolic, that there's nothing else that you need to do, even cessationists will say there is another baptism. Luke chapter 3, verses 16, uh, we come on the scene early in the gospel. John the Baptist is doing his thing, baptizing people in water. He is asked a question, and he has a pretty specific response he answers these questions by saying, I baptize you with water, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So those that deny that there's such a thing as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as in what happens on the day of Pentecost and more of a Pentecostal style faith, they will still look at this verse and they will say, well, this baptism, this spirit baptism that John's require, uh, speaking of, that's what happens when you're saved. That though you're baptized with water here on earth, when you're saved, you're baptized with the spirit and that's what seals you for salvation. So even though they say there's one baptism, they still believe in two, water baptism and spirit baptism involved in the salvation process. The problem is that and, and again, I used to be a cessationist. I used to believe this way. But the problem with, with ins, the interpretation of the cessationists is that they are wrong. Because the point of view that they have, even though it's a strong point of view, is a wrong point of view. It's not based on what the scripture actually says. It's based on what they have been taught to believe. And the Bible says that all scripture is inspired by God, Correct. It's all breathed out. It is the very word of God. Jesus himself even said that not even a grammar marking, a jot or a tittle, will pass away from his word until everything has been fulfilled. So not even just the stories are important for us to study, but the very words, the very grammar markings that indicate what the words are actually saying are vitally important. We cannot just skip over what God has left for us to study in his word. The very words matter. And the cessationist view is based on a doctrinal position, not the actual words that are recorded in Scripture. 
And the reason why they come to an incorrect interpretation is not because they are bad people or they don't love Jesus. But I know many of them that love Jesus with all their heart. Many who have gone to foreign countries to be missionaries and, and would willingly sacrifice their lives for Christ. It's not because they're bad people or that they don't love Christ. It's because they don't pay attention to the grammar and what the words actually say in the Scripture. And there have been many areas of belief and faith where I've had to go back and say, okay, what does the Bible actually say? And when I read the Scripture for itself, it's, it's amazing. Be like, I didn't know it said that. I didn't know that was in there. But this happens. When you stop studying to prove your point and you start studying what the Bible actually says, you will see some amazing things. And so th this is the whole problem with the cessationist point of view. So the disciples of Christ, they baptized with water. And here in Luke references Jesus. He's coming that he'd baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The word baptize means to immerse. So he will immerse you in, with fire and the Holy Spirit. The question is not especially even for the cessationists, if Jesus baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. The question is, when does this happen? When does the baptism of the Holy Spirit happen? When does Jesus baptize you? That is what is up for debate between the cessationists and the continuationists. Some believe it's at the moment of salvation. Others believe that it happens at another time. But in order to clarify what the Bible actually teaches on this issue, we need to look at another verse. Paul who has written more about the Holy Spirit and wrote over a third of the New Testament. He's kind of the, uh, the person who has given us the doctrine and teaching what we need to understand. He writes something very specific in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And we're going to look at this verse. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, here's what Paul writes to the church of Corinth. He says, Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free, but we have all been baptized, immersed, into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. So Paul tells the Corinthians again, we are all baptized into one body. Whose body? Whose body, church? Jesus, right? We've all been baptized into one body. When do we get baptized into the body of Christ? When we are saved. When we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the moment we declare him as Lord and Savior, and we put our faith in his death and resurrection, we become baptized with Christ. Paul uh, proves this point in Galatians 3.27. He says, All who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. When you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you place your faith and trust in Christ, you get immersed into Jesus. You become part of his body. You become united as part of the church, like wearing him like new clothes. This is what Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. So this is what happens at salvation. But the question is, is who baptizes you into Christ? Let's look at the verse again. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. It says, some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free. Read this with me. But we've all been baptized into one body by one by one Spirit. Who is the Spirit? It's the Holy Spirit. And we all share the same Spirit. It is the Spirit that baptizes us into Christ when we are saved. We need to be careful 
about how we speak, because oftentimes we just throw out terms like we know what we're talking about. You know, we like to sound smart when we're talking Bible and, and theology, but the reality is, is that we can actually confuse ourselves when we misinterpret or misunderstand terms, which is this baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Pentecostals and, and those that are, are highly charismatic, they will use this term to refer to what happened in Acts chapter 2 when the apostles spoke in tongues. That is not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the point in which the Spirit immerses you into Jesus Christ. This is what happens when you're saved. And we can confuse ourselves and get all worked up when we don't know exactly what we're talking about. And maybe some of you have come from a charismatic background and you are familiar with this term and you've used that term. We need to be careful how we speak because the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the one in which we are immersed into Christ at the moment of salvation and when we become part of the body. So we have water baptism, which we know is believer's baptism, happens when you're, uh, after you're saved. We have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which happens when you are saved at the moment of salvation. So what is the third baptism? What is the third part that we read about in Scripture as we are looking at a multi-part baptism? Well, let's look again at Luke chapter 3, verse 16, talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water, but someone is coming, that someone is Jesus, who is greater than I am, so much so that I am not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So another believer, a disciple, a pastor, a teacher will baptize you with water, the Holy Spirit will baptize you into Jesus. Jesus baptizes you into the Holy Spirit. Jesus baptizes you into the Spirit. The Spirit baptizes you into Christ. They're different. There are three levels to the baptism. There is the baptism of water, baptism of Christ, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, as we are looking at studying the Scripture, we need to understand that He is the agent of baptism when He baptizes you into Jesus, but He becomes the element of baptism when Jesus baptizes you into Him. So, we have to ask this question. We have to wrestle with this. If the baptism of the Spirit happens at conversion when we're saved, when does the baptism into the Spirit happen? If the baptism of the Spirit were baptized by the Spirit into Christ, that happens at salvation. When does the baptism of Jesus, where we are immersed into the Spirit, happen? Well, Jesus tells us in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Let's read this together. In Acts 1, 8, it says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So when does the baptism in the Spirit happen? When the Spirit comes upon you upon you. That is when the baptism into the Holy Spirit by Christ happens. And this is an indeterminable amount of time, which is why some have a problem with this. But you can read all through the scripture. Read Acts cover to cover. In Acts chapter 2, we see the baptism into the Spirit with the apostles as they uh, hear the mighty rushing wind. And again, in Acts chapter 4, as they're praying, waiting on Peter's release, they are baptized in the Spirit again. Five years after the day of Pentecost, Philip goes to Samaria. He preaches and teaches. There's a great revival that breaks out. 
And later the apostles come to see what's going on, and they see that none of them had been filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit. So they lay hands on those disciples who've already been water baptized, already been converted, they've already been saved, and after the fact, they are baptized into the Holy Spirit. 25 years later, uh, in Acts chapter 19, Paul comes across some disciples that, that, that he um, runs across that used to follow John, but after John's beheading, they begin to follow Christ. And the first thing he asked them in Acts 19 is, have you received the Spirit? And they said no. So he baptizes them with water to baptize them into Christ. And then he prays, and they are baptized with the Holy Spirit. And also in the book of Acts, we can read that Peter goes to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile, and before he even gets to the altar call, the Spirit falls and baptizes them in the Holy Spirit. The baptism into the Holy Spirit happens at different times, in different locations, in different situations with different people. It is not the same for every person. It is not the same. It can look differently for every person. But nonetheless, the scripture is clear that it's vital that each of us are immersed into our relationship with God through the three baptisms. And the question is, how do you know? How do you know if you've been baptized into the Holy Spirit? Well, Jesus makes it clear in Acts 1.8. You'll know that you've been baptized into the Spirit when you receive the power to become his witness. When you receive the power to become as a witness of Christ, to live as a bold witness of Jesus. We receive the power to live the overcoming life, to overcome sin. And he says the signs of those who believe are the spiritual gift manifestations of the Spirit. If you look at the end of Mark chapter 16, Jesus said these will be the signs of those that believe. They will lay hands on the sick. They will cast out devils. They will speak in new tongues. They will heal. There are many things that are signs of those that believe, those that are filled with the Spirit. And so as we're looking through this, the question can, become, or can arise, did the apostles have two baptism experiences? Because most of the time we're reading scripture, and especially if you just start in the book of Acts, you'll look at, well, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would come. Acts 2, the baptism into the Spirit happens, and that must have been, you know, the, the one occurrence that it took place. And so we need to actually study the scripture to see, are there more than one baptisms that even the apostles endure? And the, and the answer is yes. In John chapter 20, verse 22, after the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus rises from the dead. He begins to appear to his apostles at different times. In this account, he appears to his apostles, and before he disappears again, he breathes on them, and he says, receive the what? The Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, let me ask you this question. Is there ever a point in time in the Gospels when Jesus commanded or gave instruction that it didn't come to pass? When he asked the Lord to bless the bread for the feeding of the 5,000, did he have to drive down to the drive-thru to get extra? No. When he stepped out onto the water, did he have to get a flotation device to float across the water? When he rebuked the wind and the waves, did, did he have to keep rebuking for it to stop raining and pouring out and almost killing his disciples? No. Every time Jesus commanded something, it came to pass. There's no reason to believe that at this moment they did not receive the Holy Spirit. Salvation had finally been made possible. Jesus' death was complete. He had resurrected from the dead. He breathes on them and says, receive the Spirit. Why did they need to receive the Spirit? So they could be baptized into Christ, to be immersed into the body, to become one with Jesus. And after this point, Jesus sends them to Jerusalem, and he says, you need to wait in Jerusalem because there will be one that is coming. You will 
be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You will be baptized with fire and of the Holy Spirit. And we read this account in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. This is after Jesus ascends to heaven. So this is long after this appearance. Jesus ascends to heaven in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Here's what the word of the Lord records about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. It says, On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like a roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. It's important to understand that it wasn't just the 12 apostles that received this gift, as the cessationists would argue. It was all 120. It was every disciple that was present. He fell on all of them, and they were all filled with the Spirit. They were baptized into the Holy Spirit, and the spiritual gifts began to arise. They began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them this ability. And if you continue to read this account, you see these fearful, cowering disciples be transformed into bold witnesses. They go outside. They declare with no fear the gospel of Jesus, and thousands upon thousands of people come to Christ in one day. They begin to baptize these new disciples, and revival breaks out that has continued to break out and spell out all over the world, even to this day. Praise the Lord. Somebody say amen. Amen. The Spirit of God changes things. And this was the day they'd already received the Spirit. Jesus had already breathed them to them. But there was a second experience, a second event that Jesus said they needed to wait for. And it was the baptism into the Holy Spirit. And the evidence that Jesus said that would be revealed was that they would have these spiritual gifts. And as we can see, many of them spoke with other languages, began to prophesy and preach and the like. Three baptisms. Water baptism of believers, spirit baptism of the Spirit into Christ, and the Lord's baptism into the Holy Spirit. There are three baptisms, and all three agree. They're united into one because all three parts create the one and holy baptism. Let's look at what John says again in 1 John chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. He says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, who is a church? The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In verse 8, look what he says. There are three that bear witness on earth. So we have three that bear witness in heaven, but now three that bear witness on earth. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. These are the three baptisms. The three that bear record in heaven are the Trinity. The three that bear record on the earth are the three baptisms. The baptism of the Spirit, the baptism into the Spirit, and the water baptism. And it's significant that we look at this passage of Scripture to see what these terms are reflecting because I want you to get the picture that this isn't just a New Testament phenomenon. This is actually revealed all throughout the Old Testament. But blood here is significant when it refers to the blood. In Hebrews 9.22, this is a quotation also from the book of Leviticus. In Hebrews 9.22, it says this, In fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood, for without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. So salvation cannot be possible if there's no shedding of blood. If Jesus did not spill his blood, we could not be saved. 
So the blood here in 1 John, it is representing the salvation, the fact that when we are baptized into Christ, the element the Spirit uses is the very blood of Jesus that washes away our sins and gives us that right standing with Christ. There is no forgiveness of sins without the blood, and you cannot have blood without the sacrifice. So praise God, Jesus went to the cross. Jesus gave his life, poured out his blood so that we could be saved. This is the great exchange that John Calvin referred to as he bore our sins and we received his righteousness through that saving work as we're united into his body. The blood symbolizes salvation and the blood baptism by the Holy Spirit testifies here on earth on your behalf. The next that John refers to is, is water. Water is the symbol of baptism. And we know water baptism, as, as we gather at the pond each and every summer, when you go down under the water, you're buried in likeness of his death. And when you come out of the water, you're raised in likeness of his glorious resurrection. Water baptism symbolizes not just that you've been forgiven, but you're now putting your sinful nature to death, and you're being raised to new life in Jesus. It symbolizes a cleansing and a preparation for a new and holy life. This is the initiation of this new life that you have in Jesus. And the water baptism can only take effect or take place after you've been baptized into the blood, after you've had your sins forgiven. And so maybe you grew up in a tradition that baptized infants and you were baptized as a baby. That, that was just getting you wet. Because water baptism, believer's baptism, only comes after you've been given a right standing with God where your sins are forgiven. You go under the water to show you've made the conscious decision to repent of your sin, turn from your wicked ways, put your old nature to death, and rise to a new life in Jesus Christ. Water baptism symbolizes this new life, this new purpose, that you've come into agreement with God and have begun a relationship with God after you have been saved. Water baptism, baptism symbolizes the washing of your soul, the newness of life. And finally, John here, he mentions a third element that bears record on earth. This is of the Spirit. This is the baptism into the Spirit. The final revelation that the signifier that you are a child of God when you've been immersed into the Spirit and given the power to become the witnesses of Jesus Christ. The blood testifies you've been forgiven by God. The water testifies you're cleansed before God. And the Spirit testifies you are holy like God. And many of you, maybe you grew up like me and you were never taught that there was more than one baptism. And that all you need to do is be saved and water baptized. And as long as you read your Bible, pray every day, you will grow, grow, grow. You will grow, grow, grow. You will grow, grow, grow. You know, the, these songs we sing, you know, they, they kind of teach these, these truths. And this is all I grew up with. I thought, well, I was saved, I was baptized, I'm good to go. You know, I'm just like, this is, this is all there is. The problem is, is that my whole life I felt like I was missing something. That there was something more that I could have with God, something more tangible. I just couldn't put my finger on it. And I did not realize nor understand that the baptism in the Spirit was actually a thing and that it was not only possible, but it was God's mechanism to draw me closer into his heart, to connect me to his heart and to fill that longing in my spirit that there had to be something more, more than what I'm experiencing right now. And if you know the point of our relationship with God is to get us closer to God. You know, at the fall, when Adam and Eve bit the apple, 
morons. You know what I'm saying? When, it, when they bit the apple, what'd that do? That separated us from God and created all sorts of havoc. So what's the point of getting saved and, and coming to God? It's to reunite us back into relationship, to get us closer to God. It's not to become religious and show up to service every Sunday and feel guilty when you don't. It's to become close to God, to find true fulfillment and purpose in Jesus, to know him, to be completely known by him and fulfilled by him. And the more we know him, the more our soul is satisfied. The scripture says that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, that there's joy in his presence, that he crowns us with love and tender mercy, and he gives us strength in the midst of our greatest weakness, that there is peace that passes all understanding. This is why we grow closer to Jesus, because it is not that those things are just available in him, is that he is those things. The very things this world hungers for is the very thing God is, yet the world runs away, but we draw close. And the word says if we draw close to Christ, he will draw close to us. He will draw close. And I thank God through Christ we've been given access to Jesus through what he did for us on the cross. But we need to understand that we will never have the type of relationship that we could have with God until we have experienced every baptism we can. Because each baptism lowers the barriers that we have to getting close to God. Does this mean that you're not saved if you've not been baptized into the Spirit? Not at all. The blood guarantees your salvation. The blood guarantees your salvation. But you cannot get closer to Jesus until you are in obedience with Jesus. Because sin breaks fellowship. And if you've not been baptized according to the Lord's command, you are, out, you are in a sinful state. You need to be baptized. And when you become baptized as a new believer, you step one step closer to Christ because your life is coming into agreement with his will and his word. That's why water baptism gets you closer and prepares you for new life. Each baptism gets you closer to Jesus. Blood gets you in the door. Water gets you into the inner court. But it is the Spirit of God that gets you into the Holy of Holies, the place where his presence dwells. And this picture was even true in the Old Testament. After uh, the nation of Israel left to Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea. God comes to Moses, and he tells him, Moses, I want you to pitch me a tent. But not just any kind of tent. I'm going to give you specific instructions, and you better build this to exact specification. If not, somebody's going to die. You know, he just like, it's like, okay, God, we're going to make this happen. And, and God uh, gives gifts, a spiritual uh, ability to these men in the camp that, so they could build this tent, and they called it the tabernacle. And it was so vital to the nation of Israel because it was going to be the place where God actually lived. His presence. They made this gold box with angels on either side called the Ark of the Covenant. And God's presence in, in physical reality rested on top of that box. And the tabernacle, again, mirrored again in the temple later. But it had three main chambers. It had the outer courts, the inner courts, and this place called the holy place. It was the most holy place. That's where God lived. And what separated the people from the most holy place was like this three-foot curtain they called the veil. And the only person allowed to go into the Holy of Holies was the high priest, and he could only do it one time a year. But before Aaron and his sons, who were anointed or chosen to be high priests, could even be granted access, could even begin this ministry, they had to go through a process of essentially three things. They had to, they had to go through three separate things in a ceremony in order to 
uh, enable them to be prepared to enter into the presence of God. And I'm going to show you the scripture and show you how these three things mirror perfectly the three baptisms in the scripture. We're in Exodus 29. Beginning in verse 1. This is the ceremony that essentially the tabernacle had been fulfilled, been created, and now they were getting ready to anoint the priest so he could begin his work before God and for the nation of Israel. In Exodus 29, beginning in verse 1, this is the dedication of the priest. It says this. It says, The ceremony you must follow when you consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Here's what you do. You take a young bull and two rams with no defects, And then using choice wheat flour and no yeast, make loaves of bread, thin cakes mixed with olive oil, wafers spread with oil, place them all in a single basket and present them at the entrance of the tabernacle along with the young bull and the two rams. So before Aaron could even get through the door of the tabernacle, they had to get these animals and this basket of bread. Let me ask you this question. What were the animals for? Say it out loud. Sacrifice, blood sacrifice. Blood would be spilt. Why did the blood need to be spilt? For the forgiveness of sins, right? Without the shedding of blood, forgiveness could not be possible. In order for them to be, their sins to be covered and for them to be possible to have right standing with God, a sacrifice must be given. What was the other element that they had to bring? A basket of bread. Is there another ceremony that we partake of? That uses a red liquid and bread? Communion. What does communion symbolize? The body and blood of Jesus. Why was the body and blood of Jesus given for us? So that we could be saved. Salvation. This is the baptism into the Holy Spirit or into Jesus by the Holy Spirit where the Spirit, by the blood of Christ, baptizes us into his body to get us through the door of the temple. Let's look at the next verse. Verse 4, it says, Present Aaron and his sons at the entrance of the tabernacle, and then wash them with what? Water. Dress Aaron in his priestly garments, the tunic, the robe worn with the ephod, the ephod itself, and the chest piece, Then wrap the decorative sash of the ephod around him, place the turban on his head, and fasten the sacred medallion to the turban. So they were washed, and then they were given new clothes. What does water baptism represent? Washing and new life. There's a washing and new life. Believer's baptism. The old life being dead, being raised up to new life. And these just weren't any clothes that they were put on. These were specific priestly garments, especially created for the priests of God who would minister into the holy place, the very presence of God. And Peter tells us about the church that we are, as the church of Jesus Christ, we are a royal priesthood. In Revelation 1.6, John writes that God has made us a kingdom of what? Priests. For God is Father, all glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. When we are immersed into Christ and our sins are forgiven and we go down into the water and come back up, we are preparing ourselves for a ministry, a ministry of priests of God into the world. 
to be intermediaries, intercessors for the world. That's why God has sent us out into the world so that we can take the temple into the world and be the priests of God, engaging people where they are on behalf of God himself. When we rise out of the waters of baptism, we rise out of our, into our heavenly identity as the priests of God. They had the blood, they had the water, and then finally, verse 7, it says, anoint him by pouring the anointing oil over his head. Oil all throughout the scripture represents who? The Holy Spirit. All throughout the Bible, people who are anointed with oil represents the anointing power, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. They anointed them with oil. It says, next, present his sons and dress them in their tunics, wrap their sashes around the waist of Aaron and his sons, put their special head coverings on them, then the right to the priesthood will be theirs by law forever. In this way, you will ordain Aaron and his sons. Until they were anointed with the final baptism, the final oil, they were not fully prepared to live up to their calling as the priests of God. But once they were anointed and finally prepared, it says that they were given the right to stand before God permanently. That means anytime they wanted. Anytime they wanted. They could stand before God. And we know that they were allowed one time a year into the very inner chamber, but they were the only ones after that anointing who could go into the tabernacle and administer the sacrifices on behalf of the people. The priest of God has the right to stand before him, and there is no fear of judgment. If anybody else tried to get before the presence of God, they would have been killed. And God wiped people out just for touching the Ark of the Covenant without permission, without being the proper bloodline. If you were to stand before God, you'd be killed. But the anointed priest who had gone through the three baptisms had no fear of judgment. In John, in 1 John 4, 18, he says this, such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we're afraid, it's for fear of punishment, and, that, and this shows us that we've not fully experienced his perfect love. See, my life used to be dominated by fear. I looked at all the sin and all the junk in my life, and I thought, you know what? It's only a matter of time before God hits the execute button, and I'm wiped out. I always used to feel like God was constantly mad at me, angry with me. And, and there are times, especially after I made a mistake or, or I did something wrong, I would have a hard time bringing myself to even pray because I felt like, oh, this is not going to go so well. I'm not even worthy. But, you know, the word says that I can go boldly before him and find help and mercy and unconditional love. And this is what the baptism of Christ into the Holy Spirit does. When the Spirit comes upon you, you receive the power to reach your full potential in Jesus to enter into the holy place and minister as a priest of God. You become connected not just to the heart of God, but to the innermost place, the intimate place of his heart. The baptism of Christ into the Holy Spirit or lack thereof doesn't make you any more or less saved, but what it does is it draws you closer and deeper into your relationship with God and gives you access to God that you never had before. There is something more that God has for us, and that is given through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, that is the theology behind the Scripture, and I believe the Bible is clear. This is just as relevant and necessary for today as it was 2,000 years ago. As it was, the baptism into the Holy Spirit is vital. That's where our power comes from, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. 
And now I want to share with you my personal testimony as we begin to wrap things up. I said before that I didn't believe any of this stuff was true. I used to argue against it in my youth and even all the way through college because I was trained. I, was, I grew up in a Baptist church, and I was a really good Baptist. I mean, I had their doctrine down, and, and man, I, I got fired up when people didn't agree with me. But, uh, you know, I have been saved. I accepted Christ when I was four years old. And aside from a few rebellious years from about my eighth grade to my sophomore year in high school, I, for the most part, I was a pretty good kid, didn't get in very much trouble. Um, I felt called to serve God in the eighth grade, and I rededicated my life to Christ in the tenth grade. And my passion has always been music, which is why it just so happens my wife and I met at a music competition, and we started out our ministry in, in worship leading. Surprise, I know. But, uh, you know, that, that's just kind of been in my heart and what was driving uh, my desire to serve the Lord. Um, but uh, we moved up to Michigan here in 2010, and about five years ago or so, the church began to really experience some very difficult times, from very, very, uh, very difficult season. And uh, the church was highly divided. We went through a couple different church splits, and we were just really struggling to, to stay positive and hopeful that, that we were going to make it through because it didn't look good. The finances were in the toilet, and the pastor and I were talking about whose salary do we cut first and what are we going to do. And um, it was just, it was not a good time. And so uh, my pastor at the time, who grew up in the same tradition I did, he said, you know, the only thing that can bring us out of this, this division, this divisiveness, this fighting, is just a move of the Holy Spirit. And so he said, we're, we're going to go into a series on the Holy Spirit. We're just going to pray that, that God moves, revival happens, and, and this stuff gets settled. The church gets united back together. And so we began this series. And I was right along with him. I was like, I don't know what's going on, but we can't keep going like this. So Holy Spirit, come and and do something. I don't care what it is. Just do something. Make this thing better. And we had some of the most incredible worship experiences and worship services. Then God actually began to cultivate a heart for speaking during that time. And I began to preach for the very first time in my life. It was just an amazing time. Um, but uh, And even during this, this series, he brought in a, a guest pastor who spoke to the church on, on healing and praying for healing. And my wife and I talk about this, this time a lot where uh, she historically had had fear at night, where she didn't like being home alone at night and going to sleep at night. She had this fear, and that night, uh, the, the pastor just said, does anybody here deal with fear at night? And there was a few that, whose hands went up, and, and so he had them come forward, and the church gathered around and prayed for her, and God healed her just like that, Did, took away that fear, and she hasn't really struggled with it since. And so as I'm here a cessationist, and I'm just like, this stuff doesn't happen, and I'm like, it's happening. I don't know this kind of creating a crisis of belief here for me, uh, I began to soften on some of my positions. And, uh, and one week during this, I guess you could call it revival meeting, it was just on Sunday services, but uh, we were teaching on the Holy Spirit. The, the uh, message was concluded. We were leading in worship, and this couple came forward to uh, ask if anyone needed to be baptized in the Holy Spirit or, or prayed to be filled with the Spirit. I'm like, I love God. Yeah, I, I want to be filled with the Spirit. I, you know, whatever God has for me, that's what I want. And, and if that's speaking in tongues, if that's doing some of the stuff I used to, you know, make me cr cringe when I would look at other churches, I'm like, well, you know what? I love God. I want to give Him my life. I want to serve Him. So whatever it is, that's what I want. And so my wife and I were kind of on the same page. We both went forward, 
and we were in this, this circle, and they laid hands on us, and they began to pray. And I remember in that moment, just this heavy weight. It's like the presence of God came down, and like an elephant just sat right on me. It was like this heavy weight. And I remember just feeling, I was like, okay, here it comes. I mean, I've never experienced anything like this. This is going to happen. And I'm sitting waiting for it, waiting for it, and there's just like nothing. Like nothing, you know, people are praying, and someone was praying in tongues, and, and I'm just like, what's going on? And, and so nothing's going on. I'm just praying, okay, God, fill me with your spirit, baptize me, do this thing, and nothing's going on. I look over, and my wife's crying, and she's speaking in tongues. I'm like, well, she got it. What, what's wrong with me, you know? And, and, and so I, I would like start praying again, and, and nothing happened. We, we get done with prayer. I'm like, well, did I get it? Did I not get it? I don't, I don't, I don't know what's going on. And, uh, and I remember it, it was just a powerful moment because after that moment, my wife was just filled with the Spirit, and she went over to someone in the church and began to prophesy over them. And even today, we believe that what God spoke is going to happen. I mean, it's just a firm belief in our heart. But for me, like when we were in that prayer circle, not only did I feel the presence of God, but I felt a huge weight of resistance in my heart. And I spent a lot of time trying to figure out, was that doubt? Was that just my background? Uh, the things I were taught preventing me from really believing, really trusting, because the word says that what is of faith is of God, and God pl is pleased with faith. He rewards those that diligently seek him. Maybe I wasn't seeking God, and I was putting all of this on myself. And, and so really over the next several months, even into the next year, in my own personal time with God, I would just say, God, fill me with your spirit. Baptize me. Let me know. Like, help me know that this is a thing. And I even tried to, like, attempt to speak in tongues on my own and just like maybe if I just start doing it it'll happen and I felt like such a goob you know doing it I'm like man this is the weirdest thing and uh, I was like well maybe if I just keep doing it my faith will grow I, I didn't know but I was just like whatever God you want to do uh, but about five years ago we ended up because the things didn't improve at the church we ended up leaving and God led us to start Vertical Life Church and through this whole process I just kept seeking God and just, God, whatever you want to do. I was asking questions. I was reading, reading books, just trying to figure it out. But two years ago, I realized why I had never been filled with the Spirit. When I was 12 years old, I was exposed to pornography at a friend's house for the first time in my entire life. And that one moment forever changed my life. And because I was a good Christian... I had to be very religious, and I had to show everyone that I had everything together, but inside I knew there was something very dark and very secret, and I battled this addiction and this issue my whole life, and I got really good at pretending and lying about who I was and showing everybody that I had it all together, that I was this super Christian guy, and, and I, it's not that I didn't love Christ and that God wasn't working through me. He was. He was doing some incredible things, but I even remember when we were getting ready to trust God and, and move forward with Vertical Life Church, I remember getting on my hands and knees and praying. I was like, God, you know what I deal with. You know that I hate that I do this. You know that whenever I do it, I feel sick about it. I was like, if we launch and we do this, this could go really badly. This could go tremendously badly. My father left the ministry and destroyed my family because of his secret sins. And if this goes this way, I don't wish this on anybody. And so I trusted God, and we did it anyway, and God was doing great things, and I still believe that God was in it, and I believe in my whole heart that everything that's happened in my life is for a reason. And two years ago, through certain events, I couldn't hide it any longer. And I was forced to confess everything to my wife, and by the grace of God, she forgave me. 
And when I thought I was going to lose my family, when I was going to lose my job, ministry, everything was going to be gone, I didn't lose anything. And one of the things I feared the most was not being loved. If people really knew who I was, I was actually finding the very opposite, that I was loved unconditionally. And it was an experience that I never, ever thought was my, my greatest fear was coming to pass. And in this moment, as I went to counseling, I went to inner healing counseling, I attended CR meetings and, and different events, I was like, whatever it, whatever it takes, I'm going to get rid of this, I'm going to beat this, I don't want anything to do with it, uh, because I'm not going to lose my family the way my father did, and I'm not going to go through that path, and I was just desperate. I was in a moment, I mean, not knowing whether our marriage was going to last, any second of the day was just a point of desperation for me, and I was just like, God, you know, I, I, I don't know what's going to happen, but you know what? I'm now at a place where I realize that it doesn't matter if my family stays together. It doesn't matter if I lose position at the church. It doesn't matter if I become homeless. What matters is that I have you and that I'm right with you. And I remember just being in my room, my living room, and I'm reading the scripture because that's all I could cling to. I'm crying out to God, just begging his help. And as I'm praying, I'm like standing on my feet, just praying, calling out to God. And I remember the Spirit of God spoke to me. He said, son, bow low to the ground. I'm like, okay, that's weird. But I bowed low to the ground. And in that moment, I felt the same weight fall on me. And I felt Jesus walk behind me. I could feel his impressions on the carpet. And he put his hands on my back. And in that moment, I felt that he was pulling out every ounce of pain that I've been carrying my entire life. Every person that made fun of me, every person that betrayed me, every fear that I had. And I remembered it was so painful. I remember crying out to God, saying, God, it hurts. It hurts. It hurts. And at that moment, it's like it all went away and that pain was replaced with peace and love and joy, and I knew that everything was going to be okay, and I was healed in that moment of my sin, and I was forgiven, and I knew everything was going to be on a right path, and I got up from that moment knowing I had been changed by the blood of Jesus. I had been, been baptized in his spirit. I began to speak in tongues, and I began to seek the Lord in a new way. I had a, an intimacy with him I had never had before. I could hear his voice as clear as day. And God began to lead us on a journey where we could really understand the spiritual warfare and how the enemy is like a roaring lion seeking to attack people and how unbeknownst to us, he is in our very lives, even in our minds, our emotions, that he's causing destruction and we have been blind to it. And he was leading us to, to be delivered from my own demons and I was set free from that. And on a journey to help other, be other people become free. So and I began to live the very words of Christ. That those who believe will have these signs that believe. That they will cast out devils. They will heal the sick. They will speak with other tongues. I've seen people healed in my hands. I've seen demons cast out of people. I've experienced things that I never thought I would ever experience. There are times in ministering with people that God would give me a word of knowledge, giving me information. I could see the memories and the pain that people were dealing with that would help lead to their victory. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, the baptism in the Spirit is real, and it's available.
It's available. And I know what stopped me being filled before is because I had a place in my heart I did not give over to God. In Acts chapter 8, and when Philip goes to Samaria and revival breaks out, there's a man there named Simon the sorcerer. He sees everything Philip's doing. He hears the message. He repents. He gets saved. He gets baptized. And then when the apostles come and begin laying hands on people and they begin being filled with the Spirit, they start, he, he looks over them. He's like, man, this is awesome. I want to have a part of that. And he offers them money to get the power of the Holy Spirit. And Peter looks over at Simon. He says, you can't have any part of this. Your heart is far from God. Go repent. Repent of your sin. And maybe God will forgive you. Then maybe you'll receive the Holy Spirit. I know that that was the same problem in my heart. There was an area of my heart that was far from God. I had not surrendered it to him. I believed I could protect myself and be okay, that I could beat it on my own. When Jesus said, confess your sins one to another and pray for each other that you'll be healed. If you walk in the light, the darkness will not overtake you. Remain in the truth and it will set you free. I preached it, but I didn't believe it because I wasn't practicing it. But now I know the truth of the very scripture. And I know that my heart was in the same place, but in that moment when I said, God, I can't hide anymore, I can't run anymore, you have every, take all of me in that moment is when God said, okay, now is the time. Now is the time. And I gained a boldness that I had never had and a peace that I never had. And maybe you're here today. Maybe you're here today and you've maybe experienced two out of the three baptisms. You've never been baptized into the Holy Spirit. I want you to know it's not because you're second class or second rate. And it's God's pleasure to give it to you. In Luke eleven thirteen, this is a verse that just I hold dear to my heart. It says, if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? If you want to be baptized into the Holy Spirit, you need to ask him. You need to seek him. And you need to not withhold any of your being. It needs to be about him, not about the cool things you could do or the miracles that could happen. There's a song that's on the radio right now that says, God, let me want the healer more than the healing. That's the attitude we need to have. It's about Jesus. Jesus, it's all about you. Spirit, it's all about you. Father, it's all about you. And God wants to give it to you. You need only ask. You know, you might be here today and you've never heard that there was another baptism experience that you could have. Maybe your faith journey is, is new or maybe you just have never heard about that. You know what, that's okay. Because God is still inviting you today to experience him in a deeper way. And he wants to give you the spirit. And in just a moment when the, when the music plays, my wife and I will be down here. And we would be honored to pray with you and over you that you'd receive the Holy Spirit. And my prayer is, is that our church catches the wind of the Holy Spirit. It says that when we are filled with the Spirit and we're walking in the gifts of the Spirit, the church will be strong. It'll be a great light. And oh, how I long to see us live the same words in Acts 2. It says, in every day, those were added to their number, those that were being saved. How incredible could it be for us to see person after person after person give their life to Jesus because of what the Spirit of God is doing in us. Let's bow our heads for prayer as the music begins to play. I don't know what's going on in your life, but I do know 
that God has something more. And in the quietness of this moment, I'm just going to ask you to respond to whatever God is doing in your heart. Maybe there's an area of your life you do need to turn over. In just a minute, come forward and pray. Grab us and we'll pray with you over that issue. Maybe you're just in a place where your life where you're just so down. You're like, you know, I just don't know. We'll come forward and pray. And we'll pray, God, reveal it. Reveal it to him. Reveal it to him. Ask him to show you. Ask him to fill you with the Spirit. Ask him to baptize you. Begin to seek. Make it your mission today to begin seeking the Spirit of God in your everyday life. And our God is faithful. In just a moment, you respond to what God is speaking to you. We have the communion elements up here. I invite you to come and take, take part of the communion, remembering the sacrifice and the blood that was shed. The Holy Spirit, I pray now in the name of Jesus that you would draw every heart and that every person would respond to your voice, to your work. God, I pray that you would unleash your presence that you would not withhold yourself from us, God, now in the name of Jesus. In faith, we receive your Holy Spirit. We receive the baptism of your Spirit. Wind, blow on us today. God, fill us that we may be filled with your mighty presence. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let's all stand together.